Good morning, everyone. I'm going to move this up because at first service I felt like super far away, and I don't run around like Randy. You know, kind of like runs back and forth, and I don't do any of that. So I'm going to move this closer to y'all. All right, that's better. Well, I do want to welcome you, and we are in Romans. We're in Romans chapter six this morning. Um, it is a challenging book. It is challenging on many, many levels. And so as, as we go through chapter six today, I'm gonna to be reading from the message translation. And when I uh, scripted this, I looked at various translations and the message really resonated with me. And I thought it was a really beautiful interpretation of uh, scripture. So we will eventually get into that. And if you were here the past couple of weeks, you, we saw Matt Brown. Um, Matt helped to create Brew You and is the leader of that. And he had taught and walked us through chapters four and five of Romans. And when he was up here, he showed a picture, the first week he was up here, he showed a picture of his daughter, Soteria. And she's adorable and she was in a little cupboard and it was really, really cute and he talked a little bit about her. And so I don't know if Matt's here or not because he, oh, he is here, Matt, watch this, okay? Because who is this little cherub? Who could that be? That picture is about 30 years old, all right? And that's our son, David. And you can see, keep him in, your, in mind here because we're gonna get back to little cherub David, how innocent he looks. Playing, he was caught playing with cords under mom's desk. And I just want you to know that was not allowed. Uh, in the late 80s, we did not allow children to play with cords. And um, yeah, and look at his innocent, oh, my hands are up here. That's not where his hands were when I first caught him. And, but just, yeah, the innocence of a young child. And we will get back to that momentarily. So as I said, Matt did a great job um, in chapters four and five. And last week, he very gently reminded us that in the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the early believers at Rome, uh, Paul addresses one universal cosmic problem, and that problem is sin. And then as the chapters unfold, as we walk through Romans, Paul then introduces the one cosmic solution to that one cosmic problem, and that is Jesus Christ and the redemptive work of the cross and through his love and grace and mercy that reaches its fulfillment on what we celebrate as Easter Sunday. So as we walk through chapter six today, we're gonna to see uh, Paul's continuing thoughts regarding God's divine favor. And that's grace. It's divine, unmerited favor. It's extended to each and every one of us because we serve a loving God. God is love. And it's a very precious gift and it is a gift. You know, we do not earn our salvation. We don't, we don't do that, we don't earn it. Our righteousness comes to us by faith alone in Christ Jesus, and it's so beautiful. And Jesus, literally, he saves us from ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? He saves us from ourselves. If you don't remember anything else from today's message, maybe your mind is on the World Cup and, the, and I'm confident the women will, our team, the American women will win. I apologize if you're from the Netherlands this morning. 
But if you don't remember anything else today, please remember this, that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's a huge distinction. He came to make dead people alive. And when we say yes to Jesus, believing and trusting in him, we become a new creation, hidden with Christ in God. And in doing that, you go from being a spiritually dead person to spiritually alive in him. And this is something that, this is a, a well, of course, that's the gospel, right? But it's, it's something that Paul reminds many of his church plants about this. And so when he wrote to the Colossians, he said, now if anyone has been enfolded into Christ, he or she has become an entirely new creation. All that is related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. And what I loved about that particular translation, that's the Passion Translation, is the word enfolded. Because it, immediately it made me think of you, if there's any folks who cook or bake, when you fold an ingredient into another ingredient, you don't use a beater or a mixer, right? It's a very gentle movement. And it's, it takes a little bit of time, it's very gentle, until the ingredient being folded into the original ingredient is indistinguishable from the original ingredient. And that is just like spiritual transformation. That's why I love the word enfolded. So keep that in mind. If you are spiritually alive in Christ, you are dead to sin, and you simply can't smile and frown at the same time. You can't serve two masters. And we may be tempted to do that, but we can't effectively serve two masters. So Paul, you'll see as we walk through chapter 6, is asking a lot of questions. He asks more than 10 questions in this chapter. And I kind of read through it. I read it, as I said, I read it in different translations. And I kind of was, came away thinking, well, Paul, some of this is some, kind of snarky. I mean, it's, he's asking, I don't know if I should use that word with scripture, but he's it's sort of rhetorical, sort of like he expects his audience to know the answers to these questions. And I feel that we as followers should be the same today. We should know the answers to every single one of these questions that Paul's posing. And don't worry, because he answers his own questions. So I'm not going to like ask anyone else to answer them for us. So with that in mind, let's read this. And, as, and so you know, I do have a Baptist background. And Baptists love the Word of God. And so we're going to read this in its entirety. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to land on certain portions of it you know, obviously in the interest of time, um, but I'm not going to like walk through all this twice, just so you know. But I, there's power in God's word, and I want to declare the entire thing to all you this morning. So Romans chapter 6, this, as I said, is the message translation. Here's one of his questions. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live on our old house? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind, and when we came out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. And this is one of the reasons I chose this translation, because the imagery is just gorgeous. 
entering a new country of grace. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sins every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in, in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. Don't let that gloss over you, okay? Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took, down, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's the with us God. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That is also in Romans. From now on, think of it this way. Back to here, the scripture. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. That's huge, okay? Don't run little errands. Okay, we don't trip over boulders. We trip over tiny stones. You walk around a big giant boulder, but you can trip on a tiny little stone. So you don't want to run little errands. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead, so throw yourselves wholeheartedly into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, <clears throat> you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Now that is a recurring question in the early chapters of Romans. Can we live any way we want? If, you know, if God's grace abounds, can, we, can sin not abound as well? Because he's going to just keep on forgiving me, right? So he, he brings that up more than once in this letter. And he says, you know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God, you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free, to live openly in his freedom. His commands set us free. They don't burden us. Verse 19, I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just what you felt like doing, you know, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? And that is spiritual transformation. A life that is expansive 
and healed in holiness. And holiness, beloved, is wholeness. And we find our wholeness of our identity, who we were created to be and why, in Jesus Christ. I'm going to go on here at verse 22. But now that you've found that you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. Amen? So at this juncture, um, I just want to tell you, I'm going to break this down into two segments. And as I said, I'm not going to walk through this line by line by line again. But as I read this and I meditated on it and prayed through it, I could see in this that um, like the first 14 verses, Paul is talking about who we are, our identity in Christ. And in the second part of this, he's talking about how we are, our responsibility in Jesus Christ. Because when we say yes to him, we, yeah, we have our identity in him. Well, we're just going on our merry way. We have a responsibility in that as well. So chapter 6, as I said, begins with one of his questions. Let's just look at the first couple of verses again. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? Now, if you've moved from one home to another or apartment to another, you don't go back to the old one. Particularly if in a home, if you close on one home and purchase another, the home, the minute you're at that meeting and you hand over the keys and the closing and da-da-da-da-da, that's no longer your home. And you don't go back. And this is, you know, similar metaphor here. He references baptism. That's what happens in baptism. Go under the water. We left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into a new country of grace. Okay. You go from bondage to freedom in Christ. It's a new life in a new land. Now, I don't know if you have um, had an opportunity to be a part of baptisms here at Bruce City. We will be doing those at the end of summer, so stay tuned. We wait for the waters of Lake Michigan to at least be sort of warm, comfortably warm in the shallow part, hopefully. Um, and as I said, I grew up on um, my Baptist roots, and so we had you know, a baptismal font over here in my previous church. And so baptisms were done inside, is my point. And I had never witnessed a baptism done outside and before coming to Bruce City. And so it's so beautiful. I really encourage you to come. Um, and if you've not been baptized but would like to be, we'll be, we'll be talking more about that in, coming, in the coming weeks. However, so we stand on a beach, and it's really beautiful, and the pastor, you know, is explaining the significance of baptism, just like Paul just does in Romans. And the person's immersed in the water and is brought back up with a new identity. And it's just really sacred, and it's really, really beautiful. And what I love about it is here we do it in public. And so it's a sunny, beautiful day, and you know we all assemble on the beach, and there are other people on the beach. And we're all in a big crowd, and there's people with, taking photos, right, of their phones, and 
we're doing the immersion baptisms, and you start to have other people watch what you're doing. And it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful witness. And it's sacred, and it's, it's spiritual. And there is a supernatural element to that, and I mean that in a very good and healthy way. So I encourage you, if you've not ever witnessed that, please come, and as I said, it's at the end of summer. So, as Paul says, coming up out of the water symbolizes a new life and union with Christ. And our identity is no longer affiliated with the prevailing culture. It's instead, it's an identity that's rooted in the kingdom of God. Very big difference. Big difference. So hear me. Jesus transforms your identity into his likeness over time. Transforms your identity into his likeness. Our culture will deform your identity into its likeness. Mark my words. I've been around long enough, I know, for myself and for others. Okay, I'm not exempt from anything I'm saying here. Um, so if you've said yes to Jesus, be aware of your allegiance. Be aware of your allegiance because his kingdom is not of this world. And one commentator uh, for the book of Romans says it this way, you are in Christ and therefore you are to consider yourself dead, buried, and raised with him to new life. You will not be a pawn to the prince of darkness any longer because you belong to Christ. And when your identity is rooted in Christ, sin becomes a violation of your very being. Okay, I'm not just talking about behaviors here. Although it can be very much a, a part of it, but it's a violation of your being. It contradicts your identity. It contradicts who you are, and it contradicts whose you are. So, Paul continues to underscore this point in verses 6 through 11. And now he's going to um, transition here from talking about the imagery of baptism. Now he's going to start talking about the imagery of the cross. Beginning at verse 6. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin, miserable life. No longer it sins every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. So from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God because that's what Jesus did. So embedded in this portion of Romans is the essence of the gospel, is the beauty of the gospel. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the power of sin is broken, and death no longer has the last word. Because Jesus, beloved, is the way and the truth and the life. In him, is life eternal. In him is our true identity. So if you said yes to following him, 
and your identity is rooted in him, you too have conquered sin and death because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, as I said, Paul writes this to other churches, early churches, this very um, point. To the Colossians, he wrote, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We do not want to dilute the power of the cross. Do not dilute it. Paul did not want his early church plants to dilute the power of the cross, and neither should we more than 2,000 years later. We are Easter Sunday people. That's the side of the cross that we are on. We're not stuck on Good Friday. We're Easter Sunday people. We are victorious over sin. We are in the kingdom of God. And the powers and authorities were nullified 2,000 years ago at the cross. Now, sin is not suppressed by the cross. It is eliminated by the cross. And Jesus is Lord now. Not when he returns. Well, he is when he returns as well. But he's Lord now. Whether folks want to recognize that or not, he is Lord and his kingdom is coming in and through us until his return. Huge responsibility. We have a responsibility. Now I'm going to hit the proverbial pause button here to define what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sin. Because this word is brought up over and over again in Romans. And I'm going to share with you a definition. It's not the only definition, but it's a definition that really resonated with me. I do not have it on the, on the screens because I stuck this in when I was tweaking my script. But one of the very best definitions I've come across defines sin as an illegitimate way to meet a legitimate need. I'm going to say that again. Sin is an illegitimate way to meet a legitimate need. So what I'm not going to do now is list a whole bunch of behaviors. Because this is an issue of the heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Jesus said. And so our behaviors ultimately are rooted in our heart condition. And that's why critical to this is trusting our relationship, trusting and putting our faith in God and his love for us. God is love. Because it's through that relationship, it's through the spiritual transformation that our hearts are transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't do this on our own. Believers are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the resurrection power that was demonstrated at the cross. We walk with the spirit of Jesus within us. And the spirit will reveal to us 
what is concealed in our hearts so we can be healed. God is love, so he will look through this with a lens of perfect and pure love for our good and his glory. This is not a shame-based thing. What is concealed in our heart is revealed by the Spirit, so we are healed by the Father. Okay? I'm going to say that one more time. What's concealed in our heart is revealed by the Spirit, so we can be healed by the Father out of his love. And as believers, we are freed from sin's influence. But I want you to note that freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. And that's a recurring theme in Romans. We see that over and over and over again. So our identity in Christ carries with it a responsibility, as I said, because the faithful life is an obedient life. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is really, beloved, where the rubber, rubber meets the road. Because we live in the now but not yet. As believers, we live in the ever-present tension, and I mean that, the ever-present tension of walking out a life faithful to Jesus in a world not yet fully submitted to his lordship. There's a tension in that. It's a broken world. I mean, you look at the headlines. We see it globally, we see it nationally, we see it locally, we see it in our homes, we see it in our hearts. <clears throat> and each and every day, we choose whom we serve. We choose whom we serve. And when I wrote this, what kept coming to me in my head was, the, was Joshua talking to the, Israel, the Israel, Israelites, the tribes at Shechem in the Old Testament. This is in the book of Joshua. And he is encouraging the people to stay on track. This is a very long discourse that I'm not going to read to you. I'm just going to read a portion. But he's encouraging them to stay on track, to follow the Lord God. And he makes it clear to them, they have a choice. They don't have to follow God. They have a choice. But he's, as a leader, is encouraging them to stick the course. And he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Generational inequity. That's a whole other topic. I was very aware of generational inequities in my family line. And that always reminds me of it. We have um, addiction in my family line. My mother was an alcoholic who died as an alcoholic. And I have to, when I'm walking with the Lord, I'm aware of the gods my ancestors. You know, I got, it's an awareness we need to have, right? And bring that before, the, before God. So Joshua goes on to say, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Now, I know a lot of, uh, for many of us, that's, that, that phrase, choose you know, yourselves whom you will serve, that's been reduced to a refrigerator magnet or a framed print or a T-shirt. But I don't want that to diminish for you this morning the power of Joshua's words to his people. Because the essence 
of that passage is about making a conscious, deliberate choice. Because love comes with freedom. Real, healthy love has freedom. We are not robots. God did not create us as robots. We're not cookie cutters. We don't all look like each other. We don't all have the same talents and all that good stuff, okay? So a decision to serve the gods of their... They had to make a decision. Serving the gods of their forefathers, the culture around them, or to prioritize serving the Lord God. Now, when I wrote and scripted this, I googled, and you could do it right now if you don't believe me, because the, the number is pretty astounding. So I googled, how many choices does the average person make in a day? And according to Psychology Today magazine, the average person makes 35,000 choices a day. You and I make, on average, 35,000 choices a day. That's incredible. And of course, most of them we're not aware of, you know, we're not conscious of it. Um, not all the choices we make all, you know, are, are life and death. Like this morning I got up, should I put coconut oil in my coffee? Should I put cocoa in my coffee? I mean, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but some choices we make incrementally over time can lead to life or death, to flourishing or diminishing. So those choices are important. And Jesus asks us to love the Lord God with our entire being, because he created our entire being, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. That, that's our calling. That is our calling. And then we love our neighbor as ourself. So how do your choices reflect that calling? Guarding your heart and mind. Scripture calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Scripture tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life. Paul tells us um, in the New Testament that our body is not our own, it was bought at a price. Honor God with your body. That's a responsibility. It is a noble responsibility as a child of God. It's a sacred responsibility. And our choices matter. They matter. We are free to choose, every single one of us. But we are not free to choose the consequence. And if you were here a few weeks ago, Stuart Briscoe said that. And when he said that, I, I was sitting over here and I was like, shoot, I'm going to say that. I knew I was going to say that. And so let the record show that I did not steal that from Stuart Briscoe. Thank you very much. Um, but it's true. And it's sobering. And we want our choices to lead to spiritual flourishing. And that's why we have a responsibility as children of God. So Paul goes on to say this, beginning at verse 15, so since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. And then at the end he says, but thank God you started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. It is for freedom that Jesus Christ 
has set us free. It's beautiful. And that freedom, beloved, comes with boundaries. David writes in Psalm 16, King David, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Because God establishes the boundaries. They fall in pleasant places. Love establishes appropriate boundaries for our good and God's glory. So remember that cute little cherub, little Dave, 30-year-old picture, sitting under mom's desk, having just been busted out by playing with the power cords, looking all sweet and innocent. Well, that little boy also had a penchant for running into the street. And he is uh, strong-willed, and um, if you have a strong-willed child, come see me. Uh, he's 30, he'll be 32 in September, and I've got some tricks of the trade for that, just so you all know. But we lived, when he was young, we lived in a really super busy residential area. So we were very, we were in West Racine, we um, were like a half block off of Washington, very busy, especially on weekends, a lot of traffic. We had a post office across the street from our house, suffice to say, a lot of cars. And he loved to run in the street. He was like two, like a two-year-old, really stubborn two-year-old. <laughs> um, anyway. So he'd be standing out there with other moms and their children or all, you know, and he would, I could watch him. He'd be getting closer to the, you know, you know, and he'd be looking over at me, and I'd be, no, David. You know, and he would just take that jump off the curb, and then I'd grab him and pull him back, and, and he'd be all mad and have a meltdown. And, and um, because mom was establishing a boundary. And I was establishing a boundary for him, not because I'm a killjoy, I didn't want him to have any fun, that's not it. It's that I knew he could potentially get hurt. And he didn't know that, because he was a little kid. He couldn't see above the car parked on the side of the street that there was another car coming at him. But guess what? We are children of God. When we want to, you know, proverbially run into that street, and the father says, uh-uh, and we think we know better, we don't because we can't see what might be headed at us. And it might not take two minutes. It might take 20 or 30 or 40 years. God's boundaries are for our good and safety. And when he is saying don't, he's saying, beloved, don't hurt yourself. When I'm saying don't to my child, when I'm saying no, don't run in the street, even though he was so thrilled, <laughs> I was saying, don't hurt yourself. Even though it's fun in the moment, no, <laughs> okay. So Paul says this in Romans when he says, you know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy it. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act, but offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. So how does one, how do you do that? What does that mean? How do you offer yourself to the ways of God? And I talked a little bit about that when I said about making choices, making choices. Because we, we are always navigating that tension. We're, we're in a fallen, broken world system that is always beckoning us back to bondage. And that's the tension. And in a couple of weeks in Romans 8, Paul will, will um, unpack 
the power of the Spirit, being a child of God, being empowered with the Spirit. I'm not going to go there. I love to, um, but I'm not going to usurp that. So we'll learn about that in a few weeks. We don't do anything under our own power, however, as believers. So what I want to do in these closing minutes is to really encourage you in your pursuit of knowing Jesus. I want to encourage you in that. If you're totally new to this and you're thinking, what is this woman talking about? Or if you have studied scriptures and, and followed the Lord for 50 years, I want to encourage you to keep walking with him. Keep walking with him. He is faithful. He's faithful. Because the longer you walk and the more in you intentionalize that and the deeper your relationship becomes with Christ, you deepen your identity in him. And it is in and through that transformational journey. It's transformational, all right? Not transactional. I didn't say this at the first service, but I feel I need to, okay? Um, it's not transactional that I do X, Y, Z, and then God does ABC. And if I don't do X, Y, Z perfectly, God won't do ABC, okay? I'm not talking transactions. This is transformation. And it's in and through that journey that you will grow into your true self. And as you grow more and more into your true self, the lure of the world and the counterfeit offerings, of which there are many, mm -hmm, that will diminish. Now, if you've heard me speak before, I often quote, um, well, I often quote like a lot of different people, but I have a David Benner quote I'm going to share with you. David Benner is a Christian psychologist and author of many of his books. I have this book with me, if you want to take a look at it. Um, and he says the following about your real identity embedded in Christ. The true self is who in reality you are and who you are becoming. It is not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruct by means of psychological analysis. And I think that's really interesting coming from a psychologist. It is not an object to be grasped, nor is it an archetype to be actualized. It is not even some inner hidden part of you. Rather, it's your total self as you were created by God and as you are being redeemed in Christ. It is the image of God that you are, the unique face of God that has been set aside from eternity for you. That is mind-blowing. I hope that blows your mind. That is mind-blowing. We do not find our true self by seeking it. We find our truest and deepest self by seeking God and seeking him and seeking him and walking with him and growing in him. So please know you present a unique face of God to the world. You do. It's not something I can present for you, nor can anyone else. No one else can take your specific place in the kingdom on the time continuum that you're here. That's incredible. God has a plan and a purpose for you to be a conduit of his love and his mercy and his grace to those in your spheres of influence at work and at home and at the store and in your neighborhood and beyond, at school, etc. So remember what I said in the very, very beginning is that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. 
He came to make dead people alive. And being alive in him carries with it a responsibility. It means abiding in him, prioritizing your time, making choices that align with his will, becoming the part of the family of Christ here at Bruce City. We do this in community. We don't do it as Lone Rangers, as a girlfriend of mine says. And it's a very countercultural lifestyle. And its hallmark is love. Its hallmark is love. They will know we are Christians by our love. So now if this were a class and not a Sunday morning message, we'd like break right now, and then we would come back and we would do the following. So I'm going to recommend that you do the following when you um, go about your week in the coming days. Psalm 139, 139, written by David, is a beautiful psalm to camp out. You can do it for weeks, months, a year. Beautiful, Psalm 139. It's all about God knowing you intimately. And the thing about intimacy, which is so corrupted by our culture, intimacy is into me see. That's the most basic need every human being has, is to be seen, to be loved, to be heard. And we begin that with God. And Psalm 139 is beautiful in that. And then Psalm 139 ends with David asking God to search his heart. And that's beautiful as well. To search, ask the Father to search your heart. How am I meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, Lord? How am I doing that? Am I doing that? And if I am, what am I doing? You know, what are my points of unlikeness to you? How does that diminish my growth in you? How does it minimize my kingdom influence? Believe me, the enemy wants to minimize your kingdom influence. Big time. Okay? Yes, the Father, you know, how does that sin area hurt me? Remember God saying, don't hurt yourself. How does that hurt me? And how does it hurt those around me? You know, it has a ripple effect, okay? So be assured, if you choose to do this, again, you have a choice to do some, go through Psalm 139. I just highly recommend it. It's, a, it's just a phenomenal way to camp out with God. It's, it's a practice of spiritual transparency and growing into the likeness of Christ. And when you are alive in Christ, as Paul has written here in Romans, you have entered into a new country of grace, and it's a new life and a new land. And it's your privilege, and it's my privilege to love others into the kingdom of God. Amen? And believe me, we cannot do that without each other. We can't. Don't try it. And we cannot do that, first and foremost, without Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I so thank you for every heart in this room. I thank you for those listening online. And I ask that, Lord, your word lands powerfully to transform lives and hearts for your kingdom work. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.